From Get Creative, Inc., this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. Hey, new theme music for a new decade. I got your memo. On this, the first show of the year, we begin by talking about Trump's dramatic series of escalations with Iran. Chris Franco is a combat veteran and a director with the Truman National Security Project. He is also an active member of Indivisible, and he joins us to offer his insight on where things may go from here and about what we can be doing as activists to push back. Then we are joined by our friend 41st LD Senator Lisa Wellman to review some of the victories for Democrats in 2019 and to look ahead at what may be upcoming in the 2020 legislative session. And we end with a call to action for these very challenging times. That's all coming up, so stay with us. For everyone who has been following the recent developments in Iran, this has been an incredibly anxiety-provoking and uncertain time. And so to help us make sense of what has happened so far, I've invited on Chris Franco. He is a former Ranger-qualified infantry commander who has served a tour of duty in Afghanistan. Currently, he is the Director of Veterans and Military Affairs with the Truman National Security Project. Chris is also a vice chair with the King County Democrats. He is an active member of Indivisible, and he's a dear friend, too. Chris, welcome, man. Appreciate it, brother. Appreciate you having me. So I would say Happy New Year, but uh, it's not <laughs> yeah. not exactly how I think anybody uh, envisioned starting this new year, this new decade. Certainly not the start that I was expecting, and yeah. uh, an adventurous and um, very busy start to this year, for sure. Yeah, well, and it shows no sign of, of letting up. Uh, so here's where we are uh, as of our recording on January 8th. So Iran carried out a missile strike on bases that house U.S. soldiers in Iraq in retaliation for the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani. He is an Iranian major general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Many would say he's the number two leader in Iran. Nobody was killed or I believe even injured in the missile strike, and Iran said that they have have no further plans for retaliation. And so in a press conference this morning, Trump has proclaimed that Iran is, quote unquote, backing down. So as we know, 24 hours ago, people were very fearful that this was all going to escalate very quickly into war. So what's your take on Iran's retaliatory response? Honestly, I think uh, they likely uh, purposefully missed uh, some of the hard targets in those spaces to avoid casualties, understanding that had there been casualties, uh, we would have retaliated in significant fashion. Uh, I think this is in alignment with um, the fact that they uh, would not benefit from a war and would likely have um, countless um, of, of their their sites, their people harmed in such a war, and uh, the very regime that controls these decisions would be overthrown. Uh, so it's really not in Iran's best interest to uh, ratchet things up to such an extent, particularly with the president uh, laying out this plan to uh, attack some, uh, you know, 52 sites to include right. cultural uh, sites. Well, yeah. And so that begs the question, why do we think Trump didn't escalate given his saber rattling talk of, you know, 52 sites, all that. Why do you think that Trump chose to not strike back and and to use this as an excuse to just escalate things further? The justification for a major war would not be there. Uh, Without U.S. casualties uh, as a result of this uh, attack from Iran on on these two bases, that justification to really ratchet things up wouldn't be there. That would not bode well here at home, um, and rightfully so. Um, we we really 
Uh, we're, we're seeing this play out uh, in this fashion because he knows that there's there's nothing to move forward with here. But his base seemed to be very, very behind uh, the push to war with Iran. And he seems to only do things that uh, please his base. And so, you know, were, were you surprised at all that he decided not to escalate? To some extent, yes. I mean, all signs pointed to uh, war being the desired outcome here. Um, but what gave me hope, uh, and for all the reasons, you know, that my, my fellow uh, it's in short service supply members right and now. veterans, yeah, I know, right? Uh, the, folk, the fact that folks weren't, uh, weren't harmed, or, you know, especially not killed uh, with the strike, um, it, it's everything. It, it really gives us that off-ramp to war. Um, that said, I don't think um, I don't think we're out of the weeds yet. I was going to ask because you know about 24 hours ago, you and I were discussing this segment, and I asked you point blank, "Did you see an off ramp?" And you said at the time, "No." And now it seems like we've somehow miraculously found one, but you don't think we're out of the weeds? Unfortunately, no, I don't. I think this is still a situation that we have to uh, monitor closely, and there's still it's still a tinderbox. Uh, there there are plenty of fuses throughout this this region uh, that can spark off with uh, a miscalculation. In this case, uh, I say we're not out of the weeds yet because we are in essence. Uh, fighting through proxies. And I, I envision that to continue uh, through Iranian forces and, and really some other players in the region. Uh, and Just that, lay them yeah. out very quickly for us, because I know that Russia is involved, Saudi Arabia is involved. Uh, I think Israel, to an extent, is involved. Yeah, really, really the primary forces at play here, uh, it's really Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, in a proxy war with one another to uh, to achieve dominance in the region, and they're you know, bringing in their respective allies and partners in the region to uh, assist uh, with their own endeavors. So Saudi Arabia, you know, they have us, uh, Iran predominantly, uh, Russia and Syria, uh, and then a number of the other nations in the in the region are really finding themselves, unfortunately, in the crosshairs of of this fighting uh, through proxies, and envision that to continue, uh, particularly in Iraq. Well, this is kind of a dark question, but mm -hmm. uh, after the Soleimani assassination, there was talk that there are some proxy forces, sleeper cells, if you will, here in the United States that may be moved to take action. Uh, is that a concern for you? Very much a concern. Uh, I wouldn't want to discredit any concern of that nature. That said, um, I feel it unlikely at this point to see any sleeper cells activated. Uh, an attack on the American people, particularly on American soil, would absolutely give uh, this president and really the United States at large the justification to wage all-out war, uh, which, again, I don't believe Iran uh, truly wants, understanding that they would likely be overthrown and toppled, uh, allowing Saudi Arabia to uh, emerge as the, the supreme power in the region at their expense. It's such a, a dicey situation because you have people like Pompeo uh, and Bolton who have been in Trump's ear for so long pushing for regime change. Um, and, you know, uh, after the Soleimani assassination, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut tweeted, quote, I am worried because all of the relatively sober-minded individuals, uh, individuals like General Mattis, who surrounded the president are all gone, and they have all quit because they can't work for this individual, and now the president has relative amateurs by his side. And to that tweet, I would add, he also has people who are straight up hawks yeah. uh, in his ear. Do you share that worry? I do. It is it is a significant concern. Uh, we have a number of, of you know, 
servants, true public servants uh, that used to be in that circle uh, that would have really been helpful in this situation and would have been able to give him um, the counsel that is so necessary uh, as we ratchet up towards a war of this uh, significance. Well, you had guys like Mattis and you had McMaster and then you had the Secretary of the Navy actually who recently uh, resigned, was forced out. Right. And we're continuing to see folks kind of bleed out uh, of the Pentagon in, in particular right now. And we need these leaders to uh, really quench the flames of uh, yeah. that are you know being fanned right now for war. And unfortunately, I think we're in a situation where we're seeing uh, those folks that are closest to the president that are not equipped to uh, really walk back from war and seek diplomatic solutions, but to your point, uh, that there are even potentially uh, war hawks amongst this uh, immediate uh, circle, if you will. Of the people who are left, I, I heard the, the term skeleton crew yeah. used because really it's yeah. just been so hollowed out and it's been by design. And uh, most of the people who are in uh, office or in uh, Positions of power are they are appointees, uh, and so they haven't had to have any congressional oversight. And I think Trump likes it that way, and that's a very scary prospect. Um, is there anybody left around that you, as as a former uh, service member, feel can rein Trump in? Oof. I um, will say cautiously optimistic about. Um, Miley as the the last line on defense. He's the the secretary of the Joint Chiefs. Now, what do we know about him? Because he's really this is the first time that I think people have really heard the name uh, Mark Milley, and it was certainly for me. Um, what what can you tell us about him? Oh, he's got one heck of a history with uh, you know U.S. military in general, uh, and is renowned for uh, being kind of a no bullshit leader uh, with a wealth of experience in combat zones and in different spaces, uh, particularly uh, circles like this, where we're going to have an advisory role uh, and overseeing big decisions for our nation. And aside from that, um, I don't know if I can personally your, your speak Your silence to it. is yeah. speaking, uh, <laughs> speaking volumes. I mean, just this is pure speculation. But yeah. Do you figure that, that Millie might have been the one to uh, walk Trump back? You know, I don't know. Uh, something that came out of today that kind of concerned me was um, he mentioned that he believed that Iran did intend to, in fact, inflict casualties on U.S. forces with this attack, which may may be true. Uh, fortunately, that's not the case. Uh, but to after the fact, after the fact that there are no casualties to really have that reemerge um, kind of puts put this this whole thing back on the table and the, the possibility for uh, retaliation, but it's looking like cool heads are prevailing and that will not be the case. So I, I don't know. I'm, again, cautiously optimistic uh, about, well, early anyone's ability to rein in the president right now. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll take cautious optimism. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so something that you and I have discussed in the past that I actually want to discuss here in this forum uh, in your capacity as an officer mm -hmm. uh, in, in the Army so it's my understanding that enlisted soldiers swear an oath to obey the Constitution, but also the commander in chief. Officers simply swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. Could a military officer override, technically override a command from a president that he or she believes is, is violating the Constitution with an order? Short answer, yes. Uh, if an officer in the United States military feels that they've been given an order that is unlawful, 
um, they have every right not to obey it. And I can't think of a, an historical instance in which this has happened, but I'm, I'm no uh, student of such things. Do you know of any? Not on such a level that we'd be talking about uh, a strategic decision or order that would result in uh, committing a nation to war. Uh, there have been instances, I don't know many off the top of my head in, uh, in detail, that have occurred in times of war at the tactical level where uh, an officer leading whatever respective formation has been giving uh, an unlawful order, you know, be it to um, to kill innocent people or do something of that nature, and they're saying, "No, I'm not going to do it," uh, for all the right reasons. Uh, but really, that's that's a a very distinct difference within the oaths that I, I think is exceptionally important, particularly in situations like this. It's a chain of command thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, and and speaking of the the military, I'm curious to know what you are hearing from fellow service members about everything that's been happening. I mean, I monitor your personal Facebook page a little bit, and there's some very hawkish people there. But is it, is that the consensus among your fellow service members that you know of? Definitely not a consensus among the folks that I know. Uh, fortunate to have a diverse array of, of friends that happen to be current service members or veterans. And uh, there is a divide. I think some of the folks that are most vocal uh, are very much uh, in support of uh, this president and just about anything that he does. Mm. Uh, that said, there are a number of folks that will have offline conversations uh, that really um, don't agree with what's going on right, right now and are concerned about the, the state of our nation uh, and the possibility of war that would have you know, our, our fellow brothers and sisters in arms um, in harm's way. And uh, potentially, <laughs> they will be among the the folks to to fight said war. Uh, so, it's it's a split. It's uh, it's interesting to see uh, kind of what what's coming out of the grapevine, especially with those folks that are are supporting um, some of these decisions that are uh, had have brought us to this point. Yeah. Uh, but definitely not a consensus on being pro-war. Uh, in fact, I'm starting to see uh, more folks really speaking to the desire for peace, but also that taking that that place of power. And you know, if if Iran does this, then we're gonna you know give them hell. We're gonna unleash everything. And um, and, and that's that's my fear is that there's this tit for tat ratcheting up of um, of actions against one another that will inevitably lead to uh, a war where, where that would be the case. And hopefully we can avoid that and continue down this uh, yeah. off-ramp. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've, we've taken the off-ramp. Now, I guess it's a, a matter of, of seeing if we can stay on the off-ramp. You know, before I let you go, I just want to talk about your experiences. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned, and I've personally observed just anecdotally, that a lot of your Facebook friends are, are very pro-Trump. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I, I moved to ask, was it a challenge serving in the army and, and especially in combat as somebody who holds progressive values like you do? I'd say yes and no. Uh, I'm going to start with the no in that uh, really while in uniform and, and serving in that space at the time I was able to, uh, politics really wasn't on the forefront uh, like it is right now. And uh, I really wasn't part of the discussion or any sort of division within uh, the formations that I uh, I got to lead or be a part of. And you served under Obama. I did. I did, in fact. Uh, did you so, hear any dissension against Obama? Uh, there were some, but it was it was f f really few and far between, and and really in um, private conversations, if anything, versus some blatant like rah rah, you know, hey we're all for this or that or vehemently against um, someone else. 
it, it just, I mean, perhaps it's because I came in at a time where um, ended up joining and deploying uh, during the Afghan surge, and just there wasn't time for politics. We um, we had to quickly get together and uh, train up for a deployment to support the the surge in Afghanistan, and we were the first striker brigade to deploy to Afghanistan out of Joint Base Lewis McCord, and uh, it was right here in Washington. It was. Yeah. You said to me that your values were challenged when you were in combat. How so? That's uh, appreciate that uh, that question. It war was arguably the most defining. Um, well, how do we say that? What was the most defining event? In my life, in that you you're really observing quite a bit. You're seeing the best and worst in humanity, mm-hmm. um, and you really do a lot of reflection. You know, late at night after you get back from uh, patrol or you know just in general. And I, I remember looking up at the dark, starry nights in Afghanistan, which are gorgeous, uh, and just thinking about the the folks that uh, we lost, and uh, whether that was my own soldiers or folks that were operating uh, next to us and, and really asking the hard questions about, you know, is there, is there sacrifice? Um, you know, what's, what's there sacrifice for? Uh, is it worth it? Which is a really hard question to ask, yeah. particularly in that situation. And uh, I think I was personally challenged uh, about the, the intent behind some of our wars, and Iraq in particular, you know, how many, how many thousands of our soldiers uh, died in Iraq and uh, the trillions of dollars that we spent that, you know, we could have invested here at home with all the things that we, we really need. Uh, I just, I want to see uh, our country only commit our, our service members when war is absolutely necessary, and I don't believe that to be true uh, right now. Is that what moved you to want to get involved in politics? It is the driving force. Um, I figure, you know, if, if we're going to have leaders in Congress or in the White House that have the decision to commit a nation to war, they ought to know the cost. And that cost is both here at home and abroad. Um, and I, I mean, we've got to do something. Uh, it's it's personal in, in that you know I want to make sure that the folks that I lost um, and all the families that have lost loved ones in wars that it wasn't for nothing, mm-hmm. and that when we as a nation commit to war, uh, that we're doing it for the right reasons, and and that when we ask our soldiers and you know airmen, marines, and uh, all our our service members to put their lives on the line, that it's worth it, it's justified, uh, and that it's in the defense of our nation and one another. About 60 so or so years ago, I would say that the majority of people who are serving in Congress had some sort of combat yeah. uh, experience, and now it's it's almost non-existent. Yep. Le- I think less than 10% or something close to that effect of, of members of Congress have some sort of military uh, service. Well, and so Speaker Pelosi today, uh, in in keeping with that theme, announced plans to hold a vote to require Trump to cease all military action against Iran mm-hmm. within 30 days unless approved of by Congress. Is that equivalent to invoking the War Powers Resolution of 1973 that was meant to rein in Richard Nixon? It's the closest thing we've come to uh, precisely that. And I think it's 
It's a brilliant move uh, and a necessary one. Congress has the power, the sole power, to declare war. Per the Constitution. Exactly right. Yeah. And uh, really, if we're taking a look at our, our modern wars and any future wars that uh, we potentially engage in, we need to be in lockstep as a country, as a governing body um, in making such a commitment and decision. Uh, there's a reason why it's in the Constitution, so we don't have a, a dictator or someone that's operating um, on their own personal interest uh, devoting our our military might to uh, any engagement anywhere for reasons that are, are not um, going to benefit our, our country. And we really need to see that fundamental shift in power uh, to come back to Congress and, and really in partnership with the president. Like if we are going to do something as significant as go to war, uh, particularly with a, a nation like Iran that you know, that war could potentially bring in other actors and, and expand. Um, we need to ensure that we're doing it for the right reasons and that we are resourcing and supporting our warfighters in the way that they need that support, uh, not, not along party lines, uh, but as a united country for all the right reasons and make sure that we're, we're doing what we have to do and get the heck out of there. It's my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time we uh, Congress actually declared war was World War II. Correct. Is that right? Yep. And so every military action that we have had since then has been, uh, it's been, I guess, categorized in a different way. Uh, and uh, something else that I know that Indivisible is calling for is to repeal. One of the ways that uh, uh, war has been waged is the authorization <laughs> use of military force, yes. the AUMF, uh, which uh, first came about in 2002 in response to 9-11. Can you speak to this? Yeah. So that is a, a wonderful thing to bring up and, and very relevant to, I think, the, the road ahead. Um, from what I understand, this administration has justified this drone strike uh, utilizing that AUMF uh, because the strike took place in Iraq. Uh, and that AUMF was used to justify us going into Iraq. Uh, so along the same lines here, what it doesn't account for is the fact that we took out the commander, the Quds Force of Iran, uh, not Iraq. Uh, so it complicates things. And it's, it's really using an outdated AUMF that really hasn't brought about the uh, the kind of accountability that we really need in our ongoing wars. I and mean, we're still in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And um, we desperately need uh, a new authorization of use of military force for anything that would involve Iran. Uh, it, and it needs to be, again, in lockstep with Congress. We are going to be talking about that uh, in the call to action in a little bit. Uh, but I'll just ask you, what would you like to see uh, activists and people in the indivisible community doing right now? Call your members of Congress. Uh, this this move uh, for essentially getting to a place where we have a War Powers Act of Resolution is, is absolutely necessary. And, and we'll hopefully uh, ensure that if we do commit to war, that it's done for the right reasons and we avoid war at all costs. Uh, we need our members of Congress to understand how important it is for them to, to take that power back um, and to make it clear that we do not want war with Iran and we have an off-ramp and we need to take it right now. Uh, and as this situation continues to develop, uh, stay plugged in. Uh, stay plugged in with your members of Congress. Continue to have those conversations and, and let folks know where you're at. Uh, we 
we really ought to seek diplomatic solutions before we commit ourselves to another major war, particularly after 18 years mm. of war in the region. Well, I, I want to say uh, thank you, of course, for your service, and uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, offer uh, some illumination in a very dark and confusing time. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate you having me, brother. As we know, Washington's 60-day legislative session begins on the 13th, and so I thought we would start our coverage of that session by getting an idea of what we should be on the lookout for in 2020. And so this week, we speak with one of the most prominent members of the Senate, Senator Lisa Wellman, who represents the 31st LD. 31st LD covers Mercer Island, Newcastle, portions of Bellevue, Renton, Issaquah, and Sammamish, and it is always such a pleasure to talk with you. Senator Wellman, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Indivisibles. It's great to be with you again. So 2019, as we know, is the first year in some time that the Democrats had, they had both chambers, they had the governorship, uh, a lot got done. Are you pleased generally, we'll get into specifics, but are you pleased generally with what got accomplished in 2019? I am so excited about what we were able to accomplish. I feel really, really good about it. Um, I think that if you look at actually the two years that we have been in the majority, I think you can look at that and say, this is what it looks like when Democrats act on their principles, on their beliefs. Um, they make things happen, and they make things happen uh, putting people first. Well, and let's get into some of the specifics of what did happen. Okay. And let's start with education, because I know that is uh, a top priority yes. for you. So could you just tick down a few of the victories uh, from 2019 education? You know, I have a hard time talking about just a few things. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was very important for me this year to not only chair early learning K through 12, but then also this year I put myself on the Higher Education Committee and I sit on Labor and Commerce, because I think we need to look at things as systems especially education, and make sure that the system works as a continuum. And so um, this particular year, uh, sitting on, let's just talk about higher ed, wow, putting money in for the Washington, the Washington Promise and a college tuition. So if you're a family making $50,000 or less, we're going to pay for tuition for your kids. And um, that's very exciting. Uh, we also did um, a number of packages that really spoke to K through 12. Uh, school safety was a primary yeah. um, important uh, area that I wanted to focus on going in. And I think we, we feel we did um, quite a substantial amount of work. We put somebody in every one of the education service districts who really was going to focus on training in threat assessment. You know, one of the things we found out that with so many kids, whether it resulted in some kind of a shooting or, or incident or even um, more, unfortunately, in suicide, people understood that something was wrong, but they didn't know what to do about it. So making sure that bus drivers, the lunchroom people, every teacher, every person in the, um, the front office has threat assessment training, what to look for, what does it look like, and then what to do with it, how to report it in and get treatment and, and get somebody intervening. Um, that was really important. Um, we've got a lot of good pushback on that. Special education. Right. That's really important. What surprised me was that we were looking at it and saying, we need more, we need more, but nobody ever said why or what, we, what was our objective. And then when I looked at it, I was really shocked to see that we were graduating 
about 58% of the kids in special education, even though um, if you look at the range of kids, and it's about 9 to 12% of a population, most of the kids, the vast majority of kids, are um, intellectually ex capable or extremely capable, um, highly capable, and yet the graduation rate was so low. So I think if we're going to put money in, we, were, we needed to look at it in terms of let's accomplish something and make sure that the graduation rate for these kids is as high as, or almost as high as, certainly, um, the graduation rate in general. The other big thing that we did... Um, you know, again, you know how I hate to have to speak in short sentences because <laughs> I get so excited about these things. Well, but your enthusiasm is infectious. So. <laughs> well, I mean, can you think of anything more important to be doing for me, For certainly from my perspective, it is to be engaged in the education of 1.5 million kids from birth, you know, to high school graduation yeah. or beyond. Um, so... We have, looking at our school system, I think it's been very important to understand that we have a system that first was based on an agricultural model and then was morphed for an industrial model. And looking at a 21st century economy, and I've been doing a lot of work on workforce of the future, what will business need in the future? We don't have a system that has been really geared to provide for kids going forth into that economy. And so we're in the process of doing a system-wide transformation to help our kids, make sure our kids um, have a future. The governor's initiative on Career Connect Washington um, was is transformational. Basically, you know, we've been um, having uh, skill centers and uh, various uh, registered apprenticeships. We've been doing that for 40, 50 years in the state. Um, very progressive, actually. But we have also been saying for a number of years, you know, if you don't get a four-year college education, you're not going anywhere. That's not true. Mm -hmm. um, we really needed to recognize that we want to make sure, first of all, that every kid comes out of high school with a credential. So we needed to operationalize something that we already had. Here we have the skill centers. We have career and technical colleges, we need to operationalize this system and, and put things in place. And so we, we had a significant bill on graduation pathways, really sending the message that there are many pathways forward. Um, we put an, uh, somebody into our education service districts to make sure that they're connecting all these kids to the STEM networks that are being formed around the state, to the connections with businesses so they have the opportunity to do apprenticeships or internships. And um, we also passed a bill to make sure that a computer science is an elective in every single high school in the state um, so that kids have that opportunity some of the kids are already, you know, by the time they're in eighth grade, right. they're coding and they're doing all kinds of wonderful things, and we want to support that. Yeah. But the, so I wish I had started that young. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Sure. Um, but we're making sure, you know, kind of that's just one little step. And then the other thing that was, you know, it, it sounds like, well, that, what has that got to do with education? And I would say everything was my bill to, to re bring back the broadband office. Right. And, and that's actually something that I, I wanted to get into. Uh, you spearheaded a bill to create a statewide office to expand broadband service. This passed. This is law. You said this is a class and economic issue. Uh, why? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, just think about it. You know, looking at our society today, and I would challenge anybody who's listening to this podcast, are you holding a cell phone? Right. Um, do your kids go online to Google this, or do you? I mean, do you go? Do you before you go to the movies? Do you Google what Rotten Tomatoes says or whatever? I mean, our lifestyle is changing; is very different. And for for kids across the state, first of all, more and more the the resources that they need to for their studies are online. We have one school here. I, I don't think that they're necessarily the first. They don't use books anymore. Everything is online, and all those kids are provided with technology. Uh, but the technology, they need access. Mm-hmm. Um, so from an education perspective, I want kids to be able to have the resources that they need that way. But I've also spent a great deal of my time. I don't know if you know that I was on the CURB board. This is Community Economic Revitalization Board for six years. I love that. That was economic development across the state of Washington, mostly in rural areas. And so you tell me if a business is going to go into a rural community where there isn't high-speed broadband. Right. So let's roll all this together. You've talked about so much that you've done on education. You've talked about broadband and, and the economic issues around it. What are some things that we should be on the lookout for in 2020? Because as we know, we're going to have the same majorities in both chambers. Uh, we're going to still have Governor Inslee through the rest of the year. Uh, and so more can get done. What are you looking to, to do in 2020? Well, you know, I, I try to set appropriate expectations. It's going to be short. It's going to be fast, and mm-hmm. they're going to be limited expenditures. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's just the nature of the of the short session. Yeah, we're not going to see three thousand bills this year, most likely. Well, even if you see them, we, you won't hear them. Right, right, right. <laughs> because we're, we won't get them to the floor. We won't get them through committee. Um, but some of the things, you know, in, in general that I know are going to take place and and that I've been involved with. You know, I do sit in in addition to education. I also sit on energy, environment, and technology. And uh, because my background has been so strong in both environment and technology, um, there is going to be a privacy bill which I think cons- we, we didn't get it passed. We did hear it last year. We didn't get it passed. Now, you're saying online privacy specifically. I'm t- talking about online privacy okay. and where um, you have the ability to go to Facebook or Instagram or you know any, organi- or any organization, any online company, and say, what are you collecting about me? And I want it re- erased or whatever. Um, and let's talk about you know education because I think that that's sure. a, high, a high point. Um, we want to have um, focus on uh, early learning. Uh, we did a few things, as I said, last year, but I think that we really do understand more and more of the significance of those first five years. And I'm talking about from birth. We know that if we intervene with kids at age one or two in certain areas with uh, autism or other kinds of conditions, they may never have to be in special ed by the time they get to first grade um, because we've intervened. We have really remediated um, some deficits or some challenges that, yeah. that, you know, that kids might have. I think that that's really important. Additionally, I think that we understand some of the things that happen within a family. Uh, one of the things that, unfortunately, I will t- very frankly, coming out of last session, I was very disappointed that we really did not address behavioral health as much as 
we needed to. We do need to. Um, the school is really the place where we see if a family isn't functioning well, you know, it's, it's the kids that act out, and, and we do see that. But we have to have behavioral re health resources. And so I'm working very closely with our um, Senator uh, Cleveland, who is head of the health committee in the Senate, and others. Uh, I know uh, Senator Dingra is, is very involved as well. And we're trying to understand how we can fashion something that speaks both for communities as well as school, because we often have community in the school. Sure. And so uh, we'll be working. You'll see some additional support coming out. Um, so there's going to be on something on that. Um, there's focus on uh, sex ed. We didn't get the sex ed bill last year. We Why do you suppose that was? Politics. Mm. I think that there were challenges. We got it through the Senate. And it, 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 I'm not saying that it was easy. There was, you know, it takes a lot of time. Where there were a lot of speeches about this, but we have heard so many from so many kids how important this discussion is, and it's all. I mean, it was unfortunate to hear so much discussion about things that were just not true. Uh, this is not a bill to teach first graders how to have sex. Right. You know, it's very appropriate, um, age appropriate, and and parents can opt out. Um, so I just I hope that. We're ready to take the bill forward, and um, hopefully the House will, will respond positively. Focus on dual language. I think that that's important. Um, that's another thing that I wish I had gotten started on earlier. Because too. your brains are oh, so much too. more pliable at that They're, age. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that, and, and now, you know, through the iLabs at the University of Washington, we actually have the statistics that show you know, what that is. And so that's really um, incredibly important. And then I'm going to use this time to look at a number of different ways that we can tweak monies that are coming in and flowing, but maybe giving local jurisdictions a little more leeway in how it's spent so that they can have, you know, local control yeah. and say, well, you know, this group wants to spend it over here, but this guy, these guys don't need it there. They need it someplace else. Well, this is just an incredible overview, uh, I think, uh, not only of what we have accomplished uh, in 2019, but what's going to be uh, coming up in 2020. I want to ask about another one of your signature bills, Keep Washington Working. So okay. this is the bill that prohibits local law enforcement from questioning someone's immigration status or them from cooperating with ICE. This took you three years uh, and and you say that there is still more to do. So what would you like to see happen? Well, in fact, just before you came into my office, I was speaking to the uh, attorney general's uh, people, um, and we got I got an update on where we are. One of the things that they're doing is going around the state, talking to law enforcement, to commissions, to anybody, any agencies working in any area, and talking about model policies. Because, because there's been some pushback, right, from local law enforcement in terms of uh, you know, not cooperating with ICE. You've seen uh, isolated cases in central Washington, eastern Washington, things like that. So is that what they're looking to, the attorney general's office is looking to address? Well, eventually, of course, we need to address any of those outliers. But I, I think in general, people need to understand what does this bill mean for me and, and you know, for my office. And then they need to understand 
how how they have to train the personnel within their office. And we're looking at, you know, taking the rest of, of 2020 to do it pretty much um, so that w we will have model policies in place. I think it's by May. And then um, in terms of the implementation of them, um, they'll have till maybe the end of the year. I think we'll be addressing that this session in making sure that, that that's in place. I think that the, the timeline was not as uh, prescriptive in the bill. So so we'll make sure that that timeline is there. Is that going to be something of a PR push then to get people to sort of understand what the bill does? There, there's definitely outreach, and there'll be outreach by, you know, we had over 120 agencies, not agencies, but nonprofits and uh, organizations from from various industries um, supporting the bill. And so we want to make sure that they understand what they've accomplished and how it it is being implemented. And so we're um, you know, that's that's moving forward. I think that there has been some posturing for political reasons. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are not going to obey the law and are not going to do, you know, what it says to do. I think ultimately we're still we should still all be asking our federal government to to implement comprehensive, rational, supportive um, immigration policy. Uh, that really makes sense in a world where uh, so much of our economy has been fueled by immigrants coming to sure. this country. I don't want to turn that that stream off, and uh, I want to make sure, you know, that's the strength of America, is this diversity of people coming, the best and the brightest, come to our country and, and create businesses, um, start new and innovative businesses, because I think one of the things that's really exceptional about America has always been is entrepreneurism. People can start businesses here and, and do great things. Immigrants and, generally yes, do start businesses, absolutely. or they have a higher rate they of starting. A higher businesses. rate of starting businesses no. over time, you know, over time, and so um, I just—I'm a state senator, so I'm talking keep Washington working, but I want to keep America working. Well, you're you're actually speaking to a very receptive audience because Indivisible, in particular, uh, spent a lot of 2019 uh, pushing at the federal level for the exact sorts yes. of uh, changes that you're that you're talking about. Um, I want to shift over and talk about a capital gains uh, tax bill that you co-sponsored, and it stalled in committee. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is something that I think a lot of people were very hopeful might get passed in yeah. 2019. Um, and I, I will just ask you uh, your opinion on why you think it stalled out in committee. I, I think that the appetite for we passed a number of different bills. We we addressed the B and O tax and other other kinds of taxes, and I think we just couldn't get that far in the Senate. And um, I'm not really sure exactly why. Personally, um, I would like to see a comprehensive overhaul of our entire revenue stream. And actually. Wouldn't you know it? I'm on the commission doing that. I'm on the work group who's doing that. We're looking at it. It'll take a number of years to, to really do this. But What are we, some of the sorts of things that you're looking at taking on? Well, you know, I think we have to look at what do we have and what is sustainable. Look at what's changing as we transition from gas ta gasoline taxes to, uh, first of all, self-autonomous vehicles, uh, vehicles that are fueled by energy, you know, uh, by electricity or by some other thing that I don't even know about today. Mm. Um, so we're looking at those changes. That revenue stream is not sustainable. Sales taxes, there's just a limit to, you know, kind of where you can 
rely on those sales taxes, and then what happens during um, recessions, et cetera, that changes. So I think where we can move to a progressive, sustainable, rational system. Oh, my goodness. Music know, to the ears concept. of my listeners. Wow. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> um, I, I, I do believe that th- that's you know where we want to go, and I, I hope we can get there. I was very pleased that in the group that I'm working with, um, we have a bipartisan group. And I'd like to see us go all the way with a bipartisan group. This is, you know, this is uh, an issue that really affects every part of the state. Of course. Um, and mm. we, we need to be responsive to every part of the state. I, I also wanted to bring up another bill that you were a lead sponsor on, and that was a bill to get more female diversity on corporate boards. Yes. Uh, I would love to hear more about oh, that. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, yes, I I think we're a done deal. I, I, I hope so. Well, we know that corporations that have three or more women on boards do, do significantly better than corporations that don't. Um, we believe that it's extremely important to have that diversity. I know that heading, heading a business, whether it was heading a business or, uh, you know, as, as in my role at Apple, I need those people at the table. If your voice isn't at the table, Trust me, you know, there's a big thing that's missing. And so we actually um, submitted the the bill. This is the Women's Commission that I was helpful in in getting created. So uh, sitting on the Women's Commission, this was one of their objectives in, in making sure that there was greater representation. And so we, we drafted something, and we ran it by the, um, the Law and Justice Committee of the state in the, the Senate committee. So they did the review, and actually now they've made their recommendation. This is the way this bill has been worked, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. And so with, with the guidance of um, Senator Peterson, and happy to have his guidance, he said, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with corporate law, when it, it can come through the Bar Association and that specific subgroup within the Bar Association, it's much easier for them to get both sides of the Senate, uh, Democrats and Republicans, to say, yep, it's from the Bar Association. They've agreed it's passed. So that's what we did. We submitted it to the Bar Association. They worked it. Um, they came through and they said, yes, here's here's the bill. And it's my understanding that it would ensure that at least 25% of corporate boards are women. Is that correct? Within the board, um, it would be 25% of, of the board members. And, and so the way that yeah. you're, you're talking about this and the way that uh, all of the studies have been done... Are you anticipating pushback good from that, um, corporate yeah, boards? You're asking such good questions. Well, actually, um, you know, California did pass a law and uh, for women on corporate boards, and then it went right to it, it was it was in the courts the next day. Mm. I don't think that that makes any sense to me to do something that you know is you know are, is going to be challenged in the courts. So basically, what this bill does says this is our recommendation, but if you don't move in that direction to bring the, uh, this percentage of women onto the board, then you must explain to your shareholders why not. There is so much to keep an eye on in yeah. 2020, and I know you've just given us a glimpse. Yes. Um, I will just ask you something in closing, uh, that you made the decision to run again in 2020. Yes. And, Thanks uh, for bringing it up. Well, <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to get yes. to the fact that campaigns, of course, need volunteers and money and things like that. But I will just ask you what the factors were in your decision to run or, or not to run. Again, you mean? You're correct, yeah. Well, 
oh, I'm so excited about and what I've learned about um, transforming the education system. So if all I were, was able to accomplish, um, and it's not something that's done overnight, if all I were able to accomplish over this ne these next four years were to really move the state along so that every kid coming out of our education system saw a path forward at, into an economy that was thriving, uh, wow, what... What a great thing that would be. So, and, you know, and a wonderful what legacy. That, as what well. wonderful legacy, although who knows how long I'll be around. You know, kind of maybe this will be another term after that. I don't know. But, but I think that I, I, another four years to really continue the work that we've been doing in, in education, um, early learning, uh, K through 12, and, and beyond. Um, I'm very excited about it. I can't think of anything more important for me to be doing with my time right now, and I feel very blessed to be in this position. Well, we feel very lucky that you are in the position, well, and you. so I will ask you the question that I uh, was winding up to ask earlier, yes. which is, uh, are you looking for volunteers, donations, and such at this point in your campaign? A absolutely, absolutely. Of course, at this point, I really don't know whether how much I will be challenged, um, but I think we'll be seeing and and I'm not I right now I'm focused on the session so we'll see what happens as we come into May and then uh, we file and then see what happens but at that point I may be calling out for indivisible to come on board as much as you possibly can of course and and I love working with you it is a great organization um, you know there's a lot of organizations but you guys get stuff done well, so do you. Thank so you. They, yeah, it goes both ways. Uh, Senator Lisa Wellman, always such a pleasure. Thank you. For me, too. Thank you so much. Okay, so to say that it has been a challenging start to the new year and, and a new decade is uh, it's dramatic understatements. Trump bringing us to the brink of war with Iran. Mitch McConnell saying that he has the votes to force an impeachment trial in the Senate without bringing any witnesses. So basically a sham trial. And then last weekend, actual American citizens of Iranian descent were prevented from crossing the Canadian border after returning from a concert in Vancouver. And did we mention that this is an election year, the most important election of any in our lifetimes? Yeah. So if you are overwhelmed, if you are dazed and unclear on what to do, if you want to, you know, just go hide under the bed, I get it. I've been right there with you. And, you know, the thing that keeps me going is knowing that Trump and the GOP would like nothing better than for us all to just throw up our hands and give up. But we know that that's not who we are. Right. We are absolutely committed to doing this, even if it means mentally and even physically preparing to wage this fight on multiple fronts. So this week's calls to action do just that. The first is to tell our members of Congress that we want them to limit Trump's ability to wage unilateral warfare. Things have calmed down for now. But the one thing that is predictable about Trump is that he is unpredictable. So let's call our members of Congress and ask them to do three things. First, urge them to support Speaker Pelosi's measure limiting Trump's war powers in Iran. And then, per Indivisible's policy director, Angel Padilla, ask your member of Congress to repeal the 2002 Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF, that Trump is using to go to war. It was not justifiable back then, and now, in Trump's hands, it is a horrifying liability. If there were ever a time for Congress to reassert its constitutional authority to wage war, it is right now. 
Then, sign up to attend a rally to say no to Trump's war with Iran. We need to communicate two things here. Trump's provocations and march to war in our names is not acceptable, not now, not in the future. And as of right now, there are almost 300 rallies happening across the country. So if you do not see one near you, start one. There's more on that at nowarwithiran.org. And finally, on that second front, we need to keep impeachment in our sights. As I mentioned, McConnell is doing his best to ram a trial through. And I, I think it's fair to say that if distracting from impeachment wasn't Trump's primary objective in his escalations with Iran, he certainly saw that as a beneficial side effect. So we have to let our senators know that we have not been distracted and that we still support a fair impeachment trial, one with key witnesses that the White House has been trying to keep from being heard. So after you've called both of our senators, and both of them have said that they support a fair trial, but we also know that there are pro-Trump voices calling in, so it's important to call every day. But in addition to that, Indivisible has an online service that will connect you to constituents of 13 senators who need to hear that they are going to be held accountable in 2020 if they support a sham trial. You can encourage people in those states to call their senators. And this is a service that just hit 600,000 calls and Indivisible is looking to hit 1 million. So if you are able, please sign up for a shift. I will just say again in closing that if you are feeling a little shaken up right now, I really hear you. But we can do this. And I know this because we're the ones who have done this, right? Again and again over the last three years, we are the ones who saved the ACA. We are the ones who pulled off upset after upset in purple and red state special elections. We're the ones who made the blue wave happen. And we are the ones who are going to stop Trump from going to war now or in the future. And we're the ones who are going to make sure for the good of the country and the planet that both McConnell and Trump are out of a job this November. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gettleman. Thank you again to my guests, Chris Franco and Senator Lisa Wellman. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.